This is Decoding Security, a podcast from Microsoft Australia about how to protect your business from the ever-changing threat of cybercrime. On the show, you'll hear from leaders in cybersecurity as well as Microsoft experts as we break down strategies to help keep your business secure. I'm your host, Mark Anderson, and I'm the Chief Security Officer here at Microsoft Australia. In today's episode, you'll hear all about containing and eradicating threats. Ben Danvers, the cybersecurity lead in the Microsoft Customer Success Unit, is joined by Tabita Bauer, the director of Microsoft's Detection and Response Team, and Alan Johnson from the Global Compromise Recovery Security Team here at Microsoft. You'll hear the panel explore how to determine the scale of an attack, how response teams should approach containment, and why these days it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Let's go over to Ben to start the conversation. So, Peter, in the previous episode, we covered detecting and analyzing threats. And today we're talking about what I see is probably the most important phase of response, and that's containing the attack and then eradicating the attackers. Could you tell me how and when do we move to this phase and what does containing and eradicating actually mean? Well, containment is where you take the results of your detection and analysis efforts and turn it into practical steps to respond to the threat. The main purpose of containment is to stop the spread and to limit the damage before your resources are overwhelmed, as well as buying you time to prepare for effective eradication and recovery efforts. Alan, this is your area of expertise. How would you describe the purpose of the containment and eradication phase? Absolutely. So it's about establishing the bleeding and getting a map of, you know, the scale of the incident and working a plan to preserve serviceability and evidence and moving forward to an eradication phase. But how do you determine the scale of an attacker's access? How do you know how many points of entry they have? How do you know which systems they've got control over? There's been an event kind that's brought this to your attention. Either it's an alert from a security monitoring tool or potentially an administrator's noticed this or potentially even it's affecting operations. At this stage, you need to begin to pull together a timeline with your indicators of compromise and facts that have happened, preserving your evidence. So you have a starting point, and once you've established you know, a system has been compromised or impacted, you're going to want to check out some affected systems related. It's like following breadcrumbs where each piece of data potentially leads you to the next piece in the chain. So you look in at malicious user activity like newly created accounts or changes to group memberships or excessive privilege that's been granted. You're looking for unusual login types or locations or data being accessed in a non-standard fashion, potentially large uploads of data to the cloud or out with your business. From there, you start moving on to systems that have been impacted, like are there any malicious programs running, new services running on servers or open ports or unusual processes running. You may have detections from your malware or your EDR tools. Again, you follow the breakcrumbs along, then you start saying, is there any malicious configuration in your operating systems or applications, changes to group policy, or even your know, changes to security settings, clearing event logs is a bit of a red flag. Attackers often disable antivirus products or they tamper with backups. And once you follow the breadcrumbs, you kind of put a picture of the scale of the attack and you can draw a circle around it. And then you can look to contain it within this and then plan for eradication. Wow, that's quite a lot to think about, isn't there? So Tabita, how do response teams approach containment? What are the main priorities? I guess what you will do will vary depending on the nature of the compromise, your incident response team's skills and experience, and the amount of preparation that you've performed and your organization's risk appetite. Ideally, the scenario will correspond to playbooks that your organization created in the preparation phase. 
for example, in the case of ransomware, the priority will be to stop the continued encryption of your environment and to prevent any data exfiltration. And in the case of a malicious actor, the aim might be to prevent the exfiltration of data or to prevent them from continually to move laterally across the environment. I guess some of the direct and decisive actions that you might be able to take in containment would be device containment, so shutting down key systems that are unaffected, for example, clean domain controllers. I know that might seem like a self-inflicted denial of service, but having those clean domain controllers for the recovery phase will become critical. Isolating the effective areas of a network or the inverse of that, which was pretty much what Alan said earlier about ring fencing the critical data stores and protecting those proverbial crown jewels. You might find that tactical takebacks are relevant to your scenario. You might want to set up honeypots where you set up privileged accounts or data shares that appear to contain sensitive information that no one else in the organisation uses. If they are accessed or hijacked, it might indicate a malicious actor. And implementing NFA or conditional access, again, to protect those critical identities and data stores. Knowing what to do and when will really be a balance between the risk, the time, and the resources that you have to give you the best opportunity to slow the progress and to buy you as much time as possible to prepare for eradication and recovery. The order of events can also be really important. It can be tempting to directly remediate threats as they are identified. If you have ransomware spreading through your environment and you want to move quickly to stop the spread. But if the threat is not as time critical, the better approach may be to monitor and to allow the threat to move or remain until you are sure you're ready to eradicate. The rationale is that if you haven't effectively contained the threat, eradicating too quickly can tip off the malicious actor and cause them to escalate, which may result in sabotage, data exfiltration, or actually the rapid deployment of ransomware. I guess you must have at this stage a lot of business appetite to really start taking action on eradicating the attackers, but it really highlights the importance of having a crisp plan around eradication versus just taking action when you think as the soonest possible moment to do so. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's also where the experience of the response teams comes in as well. They would have, um, be able to draw on the depth of their experience and their skills to understand what's the best next step. Yeah, those playbooks and having those skilled people in the room must be super critical in a time like this. Absolutely, because you're running on adrenaline and on instinct. And so if you've built that muscle memory, then you're more likely to make the right decision in the moment. Yeah, so that actually flows well into my next question. You talk about executing a good plan. We're trying to keep things quiet so as not to tip off the attackers. We're trying to enable the response team to go about their business with minimal disruption from the business, from the public, from the press. There's two lenses to this. One's the lens of how's the, the response team going about their business? How are they maintaining confidentiality? How are they collaborating when they can't trust their IT systems? How are they resourcing the incident while keeping the business operating? And then I guess there's the business viewpoint as well, right? Which is how is the rest of the organization behaving around this? All of a sudden there's this, presumably this secret project that's happening in a special room somewhere that's taken up all their resources, it's stopped all their projects and a lot of attention going into that room as well. How's the incident team go about their business at this stage? And how's the rest of the organization behaving around this? What are some best practices around managing that during this kind of incident? I guess what you need to hear is you need some key executive support buy-in and you need to have a plan to execute on. Businesses need to understand very often that 
processes that they ran without the incident aren't going to scale into an incident scenario. Change control processes may have to be accelerated rapidly. Purchasing and financial decisions may have to be made a lot faster than may be a requirement to spend money quickly to do something. So it's often a good idea to have a nominated incident controller who has a level of delegated authority to make changes and make decisions really quickly. In a way that still maintains rigour and accountability, but much faster with a higher cadence than before. Also, something you touched on is very often you can't trust your internal systems and your communications. So companies will take incident comms offline because if you believe the attacker has control of your environment, then it's entirely probable they're reading your email and looking for evidence that it's been discovered. They may be looking at your ticket locking systems, looking for evidence that you know incidents are happening. So companies need to either have a dedicated incident comms plan where they work on a separate Office 365 tenancy or even in a signal messaging group on app-based thing and think almost with a kind of wartime discipline of containing information very tightly to a core group. I've seen instances where it's been a massive event and less than you know, 10 people have known about it, a handful of IT people, senior management, and often a lawyer or two. That's pretty impressive. Just goes to highlight the importance. I mean, the more people that know about Incident, I guess, is going to be the more people you have asking questions and wanting to get involved in some way. It's going to be quite disruptive to the incident team if that's going on. So it's quite a discipline, isn't it, at this stage of an incident to really be able to just keep a core group focused on that incident and filter the rest of the people out of that activity so that they can get on and do their job as effectively as possible. It's certainly something you want to plan for in advance and not be thinking about what you do. It should be execution rather than thinking at the stage. No plan is going to be perfect and no plan is going to run smoothly, but the very act of planning and thinking about this and running through scenarios absolutely helps when you're in the containment eradication phase. That's a really good point. We've come all this way. We've contained our threat. We've planned and we've built up this plan, presumably over a period of weeks, to get this moment where we think we're ready for eradication. How do you know when you're ready? And what does this involve? Talk me through that moment that when you pull the trigger and do eradication, what does that look like? Eradication begins when you have full confidence that you have a scope of the attacker's activities. You begin eradication preparation running in the background. So you're rebuilding systems that you're going to replace. You may be rebuilding domain controllers or key web servers. So you look to stage these in a background situation where it's hidden from the attacker. Ideally, your attacker will be have control of the environment that you know the scope of the access you're building you know, outside this. Then when you decide you're going to pull the trigger, it's the opposite of you've been quiet all the way through the process and then you go loud and fast. Much in the same way attackers will be quiet as they exfiltrate data from your network and then loud when you deploy ransomware. So when we decide to eradicate, we very quickly look to purge attacker control, be it deleting a huge range of any accounts under the control severing C2 traffic, taking systems that they have control with offline and replacing them with known good, safe systems. And you look to retain confidence and administrative control. And when you have that with very good monitoring in place, you can begin to release the environment back into production, you know, step by step. That's exactly right. I think the questions you want to be able to answer are, do you understand the indicators of compromise? Have you prioritised them? Have you reinfenced the incident? Do you have that effective monitoring in place? And do you have a response plan in the event of an escalation in the attack? And once you've got a good level of confidence around answering those questions, I don't think you can ever be 100% ready. But if you are, have a good level of confidence, then it's a good indication that you're ready to proceed. It should be noted, though, that if there is a sudden escalation, you may have no choice but to move directly into eradication before you're ready. 
And eradication may be a step you skip entirely if the impact is large enough and you move straight into recovery. This is typically true for ransomware attacks where the entire environment has been disabled and the only option is to move straight into recovery and rebuild the environment, as Alan said, from good known backups or if you're unlucky from scratch. How long does an eradication take? I mean, is it hours? Is it days? Is it weeks? I mean, from the time you pull that trigger and go full noise, what sort of time span are we looking at? Like anything else, it's situational depending on the scope of the compromise, but it's designed to be a rapid process. Anything between four and eight hours is common. Short is better. You're looking to rapidly take control back without the attacker having the ability to respond. So often there's an outage to service during this process, so you want to maintain it as quickly as possible. So would you be doing that sort of over a weekend or something like that? Yeah, that's very common. Saturday afternoon through to Sunday morning is a common time to do eradication. If you can do it quickly in an automated fashion, you can do it faster, but yeah, weekends or whenever there's a quiet time for the business or the organisation. Okay, and so we've done the eradication. We've fired everything back up. Hopefully, got control of our environment now. How do we know the eradication has been successful? I guess apart from crossing all your fingers and toes, the best way is monitoring, monitoring, monitoring. So by this stage, you'll have learned many lessons on the blind spots in your environment and how you can improve your monitoring. Now's the time to put it to the test. There'll be a period of hypercare where all eyes on the soccer on glass to watch for any indicators of attack or compromise. This could be a period of days or weeks. Typically, during this period, there will also be a set of metrics that a SOC will collate and report up to management on a key set of security indicators. And this will continue until the organisation is comfortable that they have things under control. Interestingly, an increase in attacks on your perimeter can be a strong indication that your eviction was successful. So in our line of work, it's not uncommon to see a sudden spike in DDoS attacks, password sprays or phishing attacks. It's the attacker's way to gain re-entry into the environment or just out of spite for being evicted, the equivalent to a cyber attack tantrum. Throwing your toys out of the pram. (laughs) Brilliant. That's great. We've monitored for a few weeks, I guess, the next step and what's next. This has presumably just contained the attack, eradicated the bad guy. We don't stop there, do we? Well, absolutely not. I mean, neither success or failure are permanent states. The reality is cyber attacks are going to happen again and again. And it's okay to suffer from a cyber attack, but, you know, it's not okay to suffer from the same one twice. So at the end of this process, we'd have a thing called a retrospective where we look at the lessons learned and we look to make sure that how the attack succeeded this time can't succeed in the future. So you look to move to a phase of strategic recovery and building better defences, better monitoring, better response capabilities and plug these gaps before they exploit again. It's always going to be a cycle of um, attackers versus defenders, and sadly, you know, they're never going to stop. Yeah, there's going to be a long path back to having a fully stable and secure environment that you have confident you've got control over. It it involves making sure you learn from the lessons learned and using them as a basis for a solid security strategy. Some of the work will be short-term, but much of the uplift comes with maturity, which, as they say, is a journey, not a destination. Yeah, months and months is not uncommon, you know, as you uplift the people, process and technology. The people and process being just as important as technology. Yep, exactly. Absolutely. I bet there's going to be probably a lot more investment in security post-incident than potentially there was prior to the incident, which will mean a lot more activity for delivery teams and operations teams in the security space as well, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the pitfalls you've actually got to look out for. So there's a lot of visibility and a lot of resource and funding that is given to recover from an incident or to respond to an incident. But a lot of the really strong security controls and the way that you can prevent 
from being or mitigate some of the compromises going forward is going to take, as Alan said, a long period of time. And a lot of your teams can experience fatigue over that period and people lose visibility, people lose focus. It's not as an attractive thing to get behind anymore. It really takes a lot of resilience and a lot of commitment to be able to see these things through to the end, which is where you're really going to get the biggest benefit. Absolutely. Well, look, I look forward to seeing the guys deep dive into this topic in the next session. But that pretty much covers our topic for today. I just wanted to thank you, Tavita and Alan, for joining us. It's been really great getting your insights into what is a really complicated part of managing an incident. And it's great to get your expertise shared with our customers and partners and the general public out there so that potentially it'll help them plan better for when incidents happen in their organisation because it's not really a matter of if these days, it's just a matter of when, isn't it? Very true. Absolutely. You've been listening to Decoding Security, a show about how to protect your business from the ever-changing threat of cybercrime. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Australia. Microsoft Australia provides a comprehensive suite of end-to-end security solutions unified across people, devices, apps, and data. For more information, visit the website microsoft.com forward slash decoding security. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Decoding Security, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mark Anderson, and we'll be back next episode with more Decoding Security.